Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see, good to see most of you in here. As we begin, let me encourage you one more time. I know that certain things have to be in probably most things in our life. We have to encourage ourselves and be encouraged to do them. I think, sorry, I know that God moves in this class. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I said. God does not move in this class because of the teacher. He moves in this class because he's merciful and graceful moving through a teacher, whether I am teaching, Evan is teaching, Frank is teaching. The teacher is not the issue. The Holy Spirit is the one who moves. Amen? So many are being ministered to and growing of the Lord and being matured and, and helped and encouraged and built up in the class. Because of that, talk to others and say, come to class with me. Come to class. My personal opinion is this particular time of the morning should encompass about 400 people. Right? Correct? 400. And if we need two or three places to have a total of 400, that's fine. So I want to encourage you in that. To be evangelistic the way we are with Alpha. Everybody's beating the bushes. That's what we should do. Let's continue to do so for this class and then, of course, for the Sunday morning service. Well, we're continuing, and I think this is the last Sunday that we will actually talk about some of the specifics concerning the resurrection. With the words, he is risen. Remember the angel says to the women, why are you here? Jesus is not here. He's risen. With that pronouncement, the words of Jesus in John 19, verse 30, are made to full effect. Do you remember what John 19, 30, what are the three words that Jesus says that are recorded in John 19, 30? It is finished. Now, again, these, this is imperative that you know this. It's not only imperative that you know that Jesus said it. It's imperative that you know where he said it. So John chapter 19, verse 30. And so with the words, it is finished. The total, absolute, complete, comprehensive, eternal work of God the Father has been completed and fulfilled without any reservation whatsoever to anything being left out. It is comprehensively fulfilled and completed when Jesus says, what three words? It is finished. There is absolutely no work whatsoever by anyone ever that needs to be done to add to or to accentuate in any way the work that the Lord Jesus completed beginning with his conception and ending with his death. Amen? Because let's be careful. When we say it is finished, we often, too often may think just the work of the cross. Now that Jesus has died, that's the culmination or the end result of that absolute 
work of God which began obviously in the Garden of Gethsemane, but which began with the coming of the Messiah being conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, you remember that, and going all the way through to Jesus' death. That's the totality of the work of God in redeeming God's purpose in his people through their redemption, the redeeming God's purpose in his people through their redemption. Yes, Jesus redeems us as God's people at the cross and in his life, but the reason he redeems us is that he is redeeming God's original purpose in creation, therefore he redeems us since we were the purpose of God that he would share his glory and display himself display himself, who he is in himself, and his character. He would display himself in a people, correct? You see that in Genesis, remember, 1, what? 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so the entire scope of the Word of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is about that great work being set forth in the creation, being interrupted in Genesis chapter 3 with sin, And then with God immediately moving to what? Redeem his original intention in his people, culminating in the conception and birth, life, and then death of the Messiah. So it is finished is a big three-word sentence. How do we know it's finished? What are the three words that prove it is finished? He is risen. You see the connection there. We must make sure we get all the connection here so the Word of God makes sense to us so we can see it as a comprehensive work, not just segments of things. There's certainly segments and activities, but every segment or activity has to do with a comprehensive unity that God is performing here. So last week, remember, we saw that zeal for thy house. What motivated Jesus? What moved him to do what he did? Zeal for thy house. Jesus' zeal was to perform the Father's zeal to have a people with whom and in whom and through whom he would be glorified. That's the Father's zeal. And so the Son shares the same zeal. And so the Son takes to himself willingly and with great zeal the great project of redeeming the Father's purpose in saving God's people. And so we see that, remember, when he cleanses the temple in John chapter 2, verse 17, when he's cleansing the temple, the, the, uh, what do you call it? the disciples remember what? They remember the quote, zeal for thy house hath consumed him. And so last week we saw the zeal for the house of God. What? For the construction, the building of the house of God. And who, are the house, who is the house of God today? We are. The church. All those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All those redeemed in the Old Testament by the blood. All those redeemed in the New Testament by the blood. Everyone who is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb is the house of God. So we saw Jesus last week. His consuming passion was that his purpose for embracing the cross was manifestation of the Father's glory. And you see that, remember, in John 17, when he begins to pray in the first three verses, he says, Father, I have glorified you on the earth with the glory that I had with you before the, remember, before the world was. And therefore, glorify me. How? 
you glorify me how? By giving me a people. By giving me a people, remember? Giving eternal life. So the building of the house of God in which he would dwell relationally with his people in face-to-face communion is God's zeal. Now, why do I emphasize that again? Because too often we do not see the church from God's perspective. We must see anything and everything of our life from God's perspective primarily in order to understand anything and in order to receive the motivation and the empowerment to walk in the good of God's perspective, God's zeal. So God's zeal is not anything that is going on in the world today. It is not whether the Democrats will win and throw Trump out. It is not whether Trump will stomp on the Democratic candidate. It is not whether the Supreme Court has more or less or fewer conservative or liberals. It is not about the trade tariffs. It is not about anything like that. Where is God's heartbeat on the earth? Where? For his people. For his people. That is a primary issue. For God to be glorified, he has chosen to be glorified only in one place, if you would. A people, the church. This is important, and we need to have the church understanding and the significance and the relevance and the place of the church in our life to be elevated. I know I'm taking more time than I thought I would. To be elevated in our hearts and in our minds and in our activities and in our concepts and in our decisions. The church should be the primary factor in any and every decision we make. Amen? Every decision. How will this impact the kingdom of God within the context of the family of God? That's the decisions, the kind of decision we need to make. Not where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Or what good is it for me? The context of the decisions that we make must be within the context of the zeal of God. This is how Jesus lived. This is how we are to live now by the Holy Spirit as he reproduces in us that same zeal. So this means that when Jesus, remember he was called what? The son of David. Remember the son of David. Yes, the son of man. But specifically I want to talk about the son of David. Remember the title that Jesus was given. Son of David, have mercy on us. Remember that? And the demon said, son of David, what do you, we have to do with you? What, you know, why are you here so early? Son of David, son of David. In other words, Jesus is connected with King David in that terminology. We've talked about that. So you see a direct connection between Jesus and the Old Testament, especially specifically in that terminology with the kingship of David, with who David is and what does his kingship mean? What does his rulership mean to God? So this means that when Jesus, the son of David, shed his blood on the cross. Now get this. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, meaning when he died, he had finished, completed, fulfilled absolutely every necessary thing for the preparation for the building of the house of God. Correct? Correct? Everything was completed. As to the building, so Jesus made 
every preparation in his death. So in his life and culminating in his death, absolutely every preparation had been made for the construction of the house of God, the church. During his earthly ministry, Jesus waged victorious war against Satan. Do you remember that? Do you remember the war against Satan? Where is it? Where is it most clearly recorded? The war that Jesus waged against Satan. No, not in Gethsemane. Yes, but that's not. Where does it say that Jesus contended against the enemy? In the wilderness? In what chapter? Where is that? Somebody wrote it somewhere. Where is it in the Bible, brothers and sisters? It's in two places, Luke and Matthew in chapter 4. Jesus was led into the wilderness by what? The Holy Spirit. Why? To contend and do battle against God's enemy for the purpose of not contending in and of itself, but to defeat the enemy of God in the wilderness so that when he came out of the wilderness, he was showing, I am here not to defeat the enemy. I did that in the wilderness, but to show what the defeating of Satan looks like as the kingdom of God is being established. This is what it looks like. He drives out demons. He heals blind eyes. He raises the dead. He walks on water. He feeds thousands at a time. That's what it looks like to have Satan defeated. Amen? And then, remember the battle in Gethsemane, which Anna talked about, was a battle against man's disobedience. Do you remember we talked about that for what? Three or four weeks of just Gethsemane. As Adam disobeyed, this man obeyed in the garden of God and overcame every absolute, res- uh, he overcame all of man's inability and refusal to obey God. So that in us as believers, when a believer says to me, I can't do it. That is a flat denial of victory of the Gethsemane experience of Jesus. Correct, Steve? If Jesus did it, can we do it? Yes or no? Yes. Why? Because Christ lives in us by the Spirit. Amen? There's no way for you ever to think. I talked to someone yesterday about a particular couple. And I said, a Christian couple that they are refusing. That person disputed it. Are you kidding? It is a refusal because the power and the victory of the Lord Jesus himself. Come on in. Here's a table up here. Here's a table over here. Come on in. The victory and the power of Jesus himself. Where is that located now? Where is it located? Somebody help me. Where is it located Mary, in you and in me and in Harold and in Harvey over here, you know, some of you know Jerry and Elaine and Ronnie and Celeste and what's your name again? Even in Lisa back there. I'm not doing well with a moving here. I need to get moving. Somebody said, we don't preach in Sunday school. We don't. We, this is not preaching. This is just, this is just loud teaching. <laughs> it's just loud teaching. That's all. Do we get it? 
do we get? We must not see these momentous activities and victories of the Word of God in the life of Christ just as something on a page and something to be discussed. These are real effective, this is a real effective work of God that now has come into me and into you as believers. And the same Christ who walked the streets and the roads and all of those by the Spirit now lives where? In us. The same one. We have the same power. We have the same glory. So don't say anymore, I can't. Don't say that anymore. It's a refusal. It's a rebuff of the very life of Christ himself. So during his earthly ministry, Jesus waged victorious war against Satan and all the demonic forces which he had won at the cross. Remember this from Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. He's won the battle. The battle was demonstratedly won in the wilderness, and then the battle was paid for as won at the cross. Right? Do we, do we see that? Christ also waged victorious war against all the natural effects of, uh, of uh, the fall. What? Disease, death, nature. Remember? Um, all the bad storms, sicknesses. And he also waged effective war against all the spiritual effects. What is the spiritual effect of the fall? The wrath of God. He waged war against all this. He won the victory. Therefore, in his death, Jesus finished all that was necessary for the building of God's house. When you hear the words, it is finished, and then proclaimed as it is finished, and he is risen. It is finished, is proclaimed, and the reality of it is finished is proclaimed where? He is risen. Do we see it? The reality of it is finished is proclaimed, and he is risen. Do we see now that there's nothing that needs to be done as to God's purpose of redeeming his people? The preparation work has been finished. The foundation has been laid. There's nothing that can be added to it. <clears throat> now, all that was remaining was what? The implementation. The implementation of his finished victory, which was the reason for his resurrection. Why does he rise? Because now he will implement in his resurrection, all that he achieved in his earthly incarnational work is now going to be applied to his people. It's not applied until the resurrection. It will be now applied in his resurrection. It's not ours until a certain event occurs, which we'll see about that in a moment. So let's first look at the example. Let's look at the Old Testament example of this, of foundational preparation and builder. Jesus is called the foundation and the builder. Let's look at an Old Testament example. Why do I do that? <clears throat> because I want to make sure, again, I think, sorry, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to make sure that we see the Old Testament for what it is rather than how often people see it for what it is not. 
Everything in the Old Testament adumbrates. Do you remember that word adumbrate? What does it mean? Is a type of, prefigures, foreshadows, is an example of. I want to use the word adumbrate so you can kind of stick that in your vocabulary because it's a word that I typically use. Everything of the Old Testament as to the purposes of God adumbrates whom? Christ. Everything of the Old Testament as to the purpose of God adumbrates whom? Christ. Remember in Matthew 5, I think it's 517. Everything written in the law of prophets is fulfilled. Remember what Jesus says? I'm here to fulfill everything written in the law of prophets. Luke 24, 44. You can use that as a reference too. So let's look at the example of David to see the Old Testament adumbration of Christ's finished work for preparing for the building of God's house. Let's think Old Testament now. David, remember King David, adumbrates Christ as a man after his own heart. Remember, Samuel is looking for a replacement for Saul. Do you remember that? Remember, Saul's the first king. Samuel's looking for a replacement. Why? Because the Holy Spirit says, go replace him. And I'm, I'm, I am looking for a man after my own heart. After my own heart. It's interesting when you ask people, what does that mean after God's own? Well, it means a heart for this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, those are the secondary heart. Those are the the activities of the heart. But what is the heart of God? What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? What do you think? Zeal. Come on, we just said it. What does it mean? Zeal for thy house has consumed me. So when God is looking for a man after his own heart, whom is he looking for? A man whose zeal is for God's house. Do we see the connection here? Now, all the other stuff are aspects of it. He wants to do good. He wants to obey. Those are aspects of a zeal for the house of God. That's the foundation. So he's looking for someone. So he sends Samuel in. You remember the story. You can read that in 1 Samuel. Now. Let me. Therefore, in the life of David, when David is anointed by Samuel, remember 1 Samuel, what chapter was it? 13, he's anointed by Samuel. From that point, throughout the entire life of David, David's life, and obviously not every aspect out embraced Christ because David does some stupid and foolish and wrong things. But the purpose and the ministry of Christ is typified in various aspects of David's life. So David has years of what? Waging warfare, mostly against what enemy? Saul, but what enemy, though, of of, of the Israelites? Philistines, the Philistines, the Philistines, a type of antichrist, a type of those who are opposing the purposes of God, a type of antichrist, the Philistines. Well, I won't talk about Goliath, but he's described in a bunch of 666, I mean, you know, it's very interesting how all that happens. And so, therefore, by the end of David's life, David says that he has made all the necessary preparations for the building of the house of God. 
He's gone out and he's gone to Lebanon and he's built, bought all this wood. He's gotten all the structural material. He had, how many of you have ever built a house and on the site, Frank, y'all did this, on the site is what? A pile of stuff, right? I mean, it's piled high. There's all this stuff. And so the materials have to be gathered before the house is built. Do, do, do some of you know this? Maybe if you didn't, that's why you're not doing well in the building of your house. I mean, you kind of had to get the stuff. David, by the end of his, his reign, has done everything necessary for the construction of the temple. Who does that sound like? Jesus, by the end of his reign on earth, has done everything necessary for the construction Everything's finished. You can read that verse I have down there. What is it? First Chronicles 20, 29, 2. Was it 29, 2? Yeah. He says, I've finished. I've gotten everything together. I've just gotten everything together. But you see, it was not the Lord's will that David should build the house. Now look at this. David has done everything necessary, but yet David's not going to build the house. Look at the reason. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, remember this is what the Lord told David. Remember that, that great covenant that God enters into with David. And part of it, he says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, right? I will raise up your seed or your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And verse 13, very important, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, David, you're going to get everything necessary in your life, in your ministry, in your work, and whatever. Everything that was necessary, you're going to get it done. But you're not going to build the house because your son, whose son is this? What's the son? Solomon. Do you know what's so great? Do you know what's so incredible about that? Do you want to listen to the grace of God? I just have to say this. Who is Solomon? First Samuel 12. Who's Solomon? Remember Bathsheba? <laughs> She's taking a little bath right there, and King David's kind of looking at her. Hey, how you doing there? And they commit sin together, and the little child is born. You remember? Did you read First Samuel 12? Some of you saw the movie, so at least you think you know it, right? Okay, I saw the movie. I don't need it. I went to Netflix. And so the little child is what? About a year or so old. And Nathan comes and, remember, delivers that sermon. Thou art the man. Remember, you, you took the sheep out of the... You remember the story. Thou art the man. And what's going to happen? The little child born of Bathsheba will die. Now, David repents of his sin. Now, repentance is repentance. God granted him Repentance. What verse is that? That God may grant them repentance. Do you remember that verse? 
It's somewhere in the New Testament by somebody around Timothy. So look it up. And God granted David repentance. But the son died. God forgave David. But the son died. There were natural consequences of the sin, even though he was forgiven. But where is the glory of God in this? If you look further, now I think it's in 1 Samuel 12. Look further. It gives the names of the four sons of Bathsheba by David. Do you remember that? And what are two of the names? No, no, hold that. Hold that thought. Two of the sons birthed by Bathsheba when God blessed their marriage, which began with fornication. Do you see the grace of God here? Do you see it? Are you with me on this? Two of the names are Solomon and Nathan. Now, Solomon, we get immediately. Solomon? Solomon is what? The great, 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 grandfather of Jesus. Who's Nathan? Read the genealogy in Luke from whom Mary descends. Nathan. This is incredible. The grace of God that he would take out of this and do that work. So Solomon is coming. What does Solomon mean? It's a variation of the word shalom, which means what? Peace, well-being, the blessing of God. And what's your name again? Tammy said it. When the boy is born, David named him Solomon. And Nathan comes to him. He says, the Lord has named him. Come on, you all should know this. Jedidiah. Why Jedidiah? What does the word Jedidiah mean in Hebrew? Beloved, Mike. Beloved. And one day another man steps out there and stands in the water, gets put down in the water, comes out, and God says, you are my Jedediah. You are my Jedediah, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You begin to see the connection here. Why is not David allowed to build the house? Listen to 1 Chronicles 22, 8. The word of the Lord came to David, to me, to David, saying, You have shed much blood. Stop. Who's that prefigure? Where was the blood shed? By whom? Who shed blood for the building of the house? Come on, church. Who? Jesus. You can say it. Jesus. Who? Jesus shed the blood of the cross. You've shed much blood. And a waged great wars. Did Jesus wage great warfare in his daytime and in his lifetime? Yes. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood before me on the earth. Therefore, David's warfare and shedding of much blood was for the laying of the foundation. Which allowed now for the next step for the building of the house. With the resurrection of Christ... The shedding of the blood has prepared the way for the building of the heavenly house. And everything now is in place for the building of God's house. But 
one more event has to take place before the house could be built. And this event is adumbrated by Solomon. In the resurrection, this is the first, if you would, I don't like to use the word, but I'll use it because I don't have another word in my mind at the moment. The first step in the process, if you would, I don't like the terminology I'm using, but I'll use it this way, that will come to the place where the house will be built. On the day of resurrection, the house is not yet going to be built. It has to wait for something else. And that something else is adumbrated by Solomon. Let's look at it. He is risen, number eight. Remember, Christ laid the foundation now for the building. He is risen. It means that the house is now ready to be built. We learn with these three simple words, Christ is proclaimed as the foundation and builder of the new and everlasting house of God as adumbrated in Solomon and David. Now that David's foundation work was finished, I'm using it, it is finished in relation to David's work, in relation to Jesus' work, which was typified by David, the great shedding, the shedding of the blood and the great warfare. Now that David's foundation work is finished, Solomon's building work can begin. But when does this happen? Significant issue. When does Solomon's work begin? When Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord over Israel in 1 Chronicles 29, 23. When Solomon is crowned king, then he is given authority to build the house. Does that, did that resonate with somebody in here? When Solomon is crowned king, this is adumbration. This is typifying. He is then given what? Authority. For what purpose? To carry out the zeal of God, which David prepared for in his lifetime, and which now will be implemented in the rule and reign of this man Solomon. Why? Because he now has the authority and the power to put together the building of the house of God. When I said he was given authority, what verse comes to your mind? Come on, church. What verses? He was given authority to build. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, you go make disciples. In other words, you're going to build the house. I am going to build it through you. Where is that? Matthew 28, 18. Remember that? Solomon is then given authority. When? Not until he sits on the throne. It doesn't say the throne of Israel. Do you notice what it says? This is only used twice. The throne of Yahweh over Israel. So you see, the Holy Spirit is accentuating that the throne upon which Solomon sits is not an earthly throne. What is it? Come on, y'all awake today? It's a heavenly throne. Do you see that in this term? If he had said he sat on the throne of Israel, that's an earthly nation. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He sat on the throne of Yahweh. He sat on the throne of God Almighty. There's a man sitting on the throne of God who has now been given authority for the construction of the house of God to finally implement the zeal of God, which began with these ten words. When did the zeal of God begin? 
There are ten words that state the beginning of the zeal of God. When did it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those ten words inaugurate the zeal of God in a historical setting. And then the rest of it describes it. Correct? To me, as far as I know, the most significant verse in the entire Bible is Genesis 1-1. Because everything else is contained in it. And is a result of it. And the fulfillment of its purpose. Amen? Do we see this? Make sure we see the Bible comprehensively like this. In this, Solomon, whose name means peace, foreshadowed the throne ministry of Christ as the one who is a builder of the house of God. Listen to Hebrews 3.3. Jesus, who has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house. So now that Jesus is risen, what must happen before he can be given authority to build? What must happen? What must happen? He has to ascend. And he has to be enthroned in the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. And as a consequence, then he can say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. By the way, please note that Matthew twenty-eight eighteen is past tense. He didn't say, I am ascending to get the authority. What does he say? All authority, what tense is that? Has been given. Therefore, sometime before he said those words, he sat on the throne of God. God the Father installed the God-man. The God-man. There's a man who sits on the throne of God, ruling and reigning as the visible manifestation of the glory of the Father in his people. And we are in Christ. Correct? Sharing the same glory. Correct? And that glory is manifested in us through our Holy Spirit, motivated and empowered obedience. And you notice I did not say through our obedience. I did not say that. I don't like saying that. It can be misconstrued because it can be your, what do you call it? attempted obedience. That's pig poop. Obedience that conforms with the zeal of God is Holy Spirit motivated and Holy Spirit empowered obedience in his people. Correct? So that we are obeying with and according to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that we are not doing work for God, but that we are joining God in his work, doing the work of God with God the Holy Spirit. Do we see the difference there? And that requires faith, yielding, embracement, you know, and trust and so on. But before Jesus says those words, all authority has been given unto me. What is he going to do? He's going to spend the next 40 days, what? With the disciples. So the question is, why didn't he confer on the disciples that evening? Remember, 
Go tell my disciples and Peter that I go before them into And I'll meet them for church Sunday night. You see, that's my doctrinal comment that we ought to have church on Sunday night. But that's a different matter. That's a different matter. I know I'll get in trouble for that. But that's just a different matter. In this case, the Baptists have it right. Well, anyway, so on. So on. Okay. Why didn't he then say all authority has been given in heaven and earth has been given to me? Because there, at least, if I can remember, four or five substantive reasons why Jesus will not ascend in their presence as they watch. And he'll spend 40 days with them, and then he'll tell them, wait another 10 days after that. Do you remember that? 40 days and then 10 days for the Pentecost. There's a reason for that. I think there are four or five reasons at least, that many. So I, I, I have in the rest of your notes there a summation of, and I think, what, a six or seven or eight, summations there of the benefits of the resurrection. Do you see that? Can you read those on your own? I don't mind staying for another hour and a half, but I don't think the elders of the church would be appreciative that we kept you here for that length of time. Yeah, I'm fine with it. But mm. So next week, we'll put together the verses that have to do with the 40 days. You know, we've compiled them before, read them all, and then talk about that period of time. And then after we finish that, we'll talk about the most glorious, most glorious event in all creation is the exaltation of the Son of Man. And in Him, we also are exalted to the hand, right hand of God. Amen? Genesis 1-1 has that in mind. That's what your Bible is about. So see you next week.